Thank you, everyone, for being here. Wow, this is a great turnout, uh, far beyond what I expected. Uh, thanks to Alex and uh, Midtown Scholar for inviting me uh, to come uh, and to launch the book here. The book actually was released on Thursday, but this is, I guess, the official launch here uh, in, in, uh, in Harrisburg, here at the Midtown. Um, if, the, if you are new to the Midtown, and I know some of you are, I hope you get a chance to browse around. I mean, it's one of the, one of the country's best uh, used bookstores. I'm sorry, used and new bookstores, right? Independent bookstores, right? Um, what I want to do today is I just want to talk a little bit about the book and then uh, devote plenty of time to uh, questions and answers. Um, because I know that this topic is a rather controversial one. Uh, it's one that, uh, you know, rational people can have different views uh, on. I don't want to assume that uh, what I'm saying is the only way to look at uh, the relationship between um, Christians and Donald Trump. Um, but let me start by talking a little bit about what led me to, to write this book. Like many of you, you know, I sat in front of my television set on November 8th, 2016. Uh, I had bought into the polls and had pretty much assumed that I was going to be watching the first female president uh, of the United States be elected. Um, you know, and of course I'm an American historian, so that was an important moment uh, that, I, that I didn't want to miss. Uh, and then as I sat there, like many of you, uh, watched the election returns come in. Uh, I saw Hillary uh, losing Pennsylvania, uh, then the so-called firewall states of Michigan and Wisconsin. Um, and by the end of the night, uh, it was a different kind of history uh, that I was experiencing. And let's, uh, that's probably put, to put it mildly, right? Um, Donald Trump, uh, a reality television star, uh, a New York uh, business tycoon, a business real estate tycoon, uh, a man who had all kinds of problems when compared to the morality traditionally that American evangelicals had long upheld within American society, had not only won the election, um, but later in the coming days, we learned that Donald Trump had received 81% uh, of evangelical, white evangelical, I should say, uh, white evangelical um, votes. In other words, 81% of evangelicals who voted, uh, voted for uh, Donald Trump. Um, I must admit, as somebody who had been following the election closely, I've been blogging a lot about the election, uh, you know, I might as well have been curled up on the couch, you know, in a fetal position. You know, as I, as I watch this happen. Um, and then, you know, I was, I was tweeting, I'm very active on Twitter, and as I was tweeting some things that night during the election, uh, I, I began to sort of check out the Twitter feeds of some sort of leading evangelical, uh, uh, evangelical leaders on the, on the Christian right. Um, these were people who I knew had supported Donald Trump uh, in the election, but I just wanted to see what they were saying. Uh, and over and over again, you know, many of these uh, white evangelical leaders uh, were suggesting uh, things like, you know, God has now spoken, uh, you know, Donald Trump, is, praise the Lord that Donald Trump was elected. Um, look at all of the evangelical Christians who got to the polls and elected this man, you know, and just very, you know, praising this man. And, you know, by this point, we knew about the Access Hollywood tape, right? Uh, we knew about the various misogynistic uh, and racial comments that he had made. 
we knew all about the fact that his campaign, um, and I think these are just facts, uh, you know, were filled with kind of lies. He had called a war hero, he criticized a war hero, John McCain, for, um, for getting captured, you know, and, and all of these, you know, all these evangelicals flocked to him. And as an evangelical Christian myself, I was like, what is happening? What's, what's going on right now? I mean, what is leading all these people? And I got, I'll admit, I got emotional. Um, I got angry uh, about this. And I whipped off a tweet, and it said, I said, if this is evangelicalism, I'm out. <laughs> right? um, that tweet then got picked up the next day by, by um, you know, I guess reporters were looking for evangelicals who were, uh, not happy about Trump's election, and that tweet got picked up. It was especially, it was a, uh, the, the most attention it got was when a writer for The Atlantic uh, added it to a story uh, that he was writing about evangelicals and Trump, and next thing you know, I'm getting flooded with um, uh, emails from friends and stuff, you know, no, you're still an evangelical, don't leave, you know, these kinds of things. Um, I eventually kind of retracted that or backed off about, of it a little bit, um, or maybe some reasons that I'll suggest here in the course of the, the short talk. Um, but that's where I was at that moment. Uh, it was a moment of, of, of anger, a moment of betrayal in some ways, um, that my fellow evangelicals would support uh, this man. So that's how I felt. That was just, I'm being honest about that. Um, you may disagree with my feelings, but that's, that's how I felt at the time. Then, as the weeks went on, though, I remembered, I, well, I'm an evangelical Christian, but I'm also his, a historian. So I began to think a little more rationally, if that's possible, about, uh, about Trump's uh, election. And I began to sort of take off my angry evangelical hat and put on my, um, my history, historian's <laughs> hat, right? And I began to think, okay, what were the causes of 81% of white evangelical voters supporting Donald Trump? Is there something deep within the history of American evangelicals that maybe should have led me to expect this moment. Maybe I wasn't being a good historian on the night of November 8th. I should have seen this coming, right, is, is uh, went, went through my head. So I started to, I started to think a little more clearly, I think, uh, a little more rationally uh, about this. And so I began, it was in, I guess, in August, last August, so less than a year ago, um, I thought, you know, I had been blogging so much about Trump, I thought now is the time to kind of put some of my thoughts uh, into a book. And uh, I specifically chose a Christian or religious publisher because I wanted the book to get into the hands of my fellow white evangelicals, uh, as opposed to like a larger trade press, uh, which, which maybe, not w maybe would not have attracted the kind of audience that I wanted to have for this book. So. As we were, you know, as I wrote the book and as we were talking this over with my editors at Erdman's Press, a religious publisher out of Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, we came, we got stuck on this, I mean, we're coming up with a title, right? What are we going to call this book, right? We, we need a catchy title. We definitely did not want to put Donald Trump's picture on the cover. So we came up with this nice, uh, you know, if you've ever seen his ads, right, his, his billboards, you know, they look a lot like this. Um, but we kept coming back, we thought make America great again, right? Uh, but we kept coming back to these two words that Trump used over and over and over again. Believe me, believe me. So I wanna, I wanna just read a brief section here of the book to give you a sense of what the title is all about. Um, and and 
let me just, you know, it's a short little passage. Let me read it. When Donald Trump speaks to his followers in the mass rallies that have now become a fixture of his populist brand, he loves to use the phrase, believe me. The internet is filled with video montages. I'd encourage you to go Google them, look them up, YouTube them, of Trump using this signature catchphrase even more frequently than make America great again. Believe me, folks, we're building the wall. Believe me, believe me, we're building the wall. I love women. Believe me, I love women. I love women, and you know what else? I have great respect for women. Believe me. I am the least, the least racist person that you've ever met. Believe me. The world is in trouble, but we're going to straighten it out, okay? That's what I do. I fix things. We're going to straighten it out. Believe me. And perhaps for the argument I make in this book, more importantly, he said, so let me state this up front. In a Trump administration, our Christian heritage will be cherished, protected, defended like you've never seen before. Believe me. So in some ways, this book is about why so many evangelicals believe Donald Trump. And as Alex said in the introduction, um, we could come up with a lot of reasons, very particular, specific reasons. But I think any reason that one comes up, to, up with as to why evangelicals supported Donald Trump in such large numbers uh, boil down to three essential statements. One, evangelicals have privileged fear over hope. I should say white evangelicals. White evangelicals have privileged power over humility. And white evangelicals have privileged nostalgia over history. So let me just unpack those points real quickly, and then we'll, we'll, we can talk. Um, fear over hope. Uh, I think it's possible to write an entire history of American evangelicalism uh, with the central theme being fear. Uh, now, I think you could also write a history of evangelicals when evangelicals have made uh, what might be less fearful choices, hopeful choices, right? But it seems like the history that Trump tapped into of American evangelicalism was that history of fear. Uh, you, you know, I trace this in chapter three of the book, but you could, you could discuss this, uh, you could see examples of this over and over again. So uh, if you heard me, I was on, uh, on Smart Talk uh, with Scott Lamar the other day, and, and he, you know, I brought up this example. Um, in all the way back to, say, the election of 1800, Thomas Jefferson is elected president. He was a deist, someone who rejected a belief in the uh, 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 inspiration of scripture, did not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, and evangelicals were at the forefront saying, this man, if he's elected, is going to destroy our Christian nation. Uh, this man is, uh, there were even people in New England, this bastion of Puritanism, right? Leftover Puritanism from the 17th century who were, who were expecting Jefferson's henchmen to show up in their town and confiscate their Bibles, right? The world has changed uh, now that, now that uh, a non-Christian president came in and they reacted with fear uh, in some ways. You could bring up the example in the 1840s and 1850s of Catholics coming into the United States, Irish and German Catholics and white evangelical Protestants respond with fear. Their Christian nation that they believe they are the vanguards of, the protectors of, has been threatened by Catholics. 
uh, we need to do something about this. So some of the worst forms of nativism uh, stem out of that, out of evangelical fears that their Christian nation is falling apart. Um, it was really fear of northern abolitionists who were calling out slaveholders in the South in the early 19th century. What if people listen to these northern abolitionists and this precious institution, quote unquote, as they would have put it, of slavery, our way of life, uh, is undermined and destroyed. We need to do something about this. And in response to that sense of fear, uh, there are also many slave rebellions at the time that made the fear worse, um, we will uh, turn to the Bible and we will craft a theological and biblical argument to defend the institution of slavery. Right? Again, a direct response to this kind of fear. And you could go on into the 20th century, as I do in the book. Um, it strikes me that fear is not necessarily uh, a Christian habit of mind, to quote the novelist Marilyn Robinson, uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist. Uh, you can find fear being mentioned numerous times in the Bible in two different ways. One, fear of God, right, of, of reverence for God, but also fear uh, is not an option when you have faith in a God who is going to care for you and take care of you and is active in the world. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me, right? Psalm 23. Uh, and you can just make a long list uh, that fear is not an option for Christians. Yes, we live in a broken world. Yes, fear is a natural instinct. But someone who calls themselves a Christian just can't dwell. Uh, in fear. Yet, you see it historically over and over again, uh, evangelicals choosing fear over hope. Um, hope, of course, is deeply rooted in uh, a forward-looking idea that's inherent within the Christian faith. Uh, the idea that Christians will one day uh, be part of the kingdom of God, uh, and we should be working towards that kingdom, a kingdom of love and justice uh, and compassion and mercy. Right? That is our hope. But yet we often tend to live our lives in fear. Um, you know, it sounds like I'm preaching right now, but if you, in the book I, 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 I unpack this and the choices that American evangelicals have made from the, from the 17th century to the present where they chose fear over hope. How about power over humility? Um, I think, I think the most, in, I've been thinking about this lately, but I think the most influential and we could debate this and argue this, but I think the most influential political figure in the United States since 1945 is Jerry Falwell Sr. Um, some of you know who he was, founder of Liberty University. Jerry Falwell Sr. doesn't get as much attention as he deserves in American history books. Because Jerry Falwell Sr. and those who were with him to create what is known as the Christian right, or the mor moral majority, uh, taught American evangelicals, millions and millions of evangelicals, that there is really one way of engaging the world politically. And that is through a playbook that they designed in the late 70s and early 1980s. And most of you are probably familiar with this playbook, right? The playbook goes something like this. In order to change the culture, win the culture wars, and restore America to its Christian roots, we must elect the right political figures, especially the president and members of Congress. 
And those political figures will then appoint the right Supreme Court justices. I'm already anticipating a question here. And those Supreme Court justices will overturn uh, all of, the, all of the, uh, the cases that work against the Christian right vision of the world, right? You should all be familiar with this playbook if you follow politics, right? Um, Falwell was a master. He really was. He convinced every, all white evangelicals that this is the way you do it, right? This is the way you win the culture back. Um, and we'll talk about back, that word here in a second. Um, it is through the pursuit of political power. So it just strikes me that a, a, a religious faith that follows a, a savior who relinquished power died on the cross for the sins of the world, as evangelicals believe, a Christian, a, a, a savior who um, taught us to live by self-sacrificial love and humility, uh, that vision of Jesus Christ has been replaced with a pursuit of uh, power, political power. Uh, so I trace this historically. I think evangelicals began to get anxious fearful, back to fear, as they began to lose power in the culture. Uh, things didn't go their way. The country was coming more, becoming more diverse after the 1965 Immigration Act, when non-Western people started coming into this country and brought their religion with them. Uh, prayers removed from public schools, Bible reading removed from public schools, Roe v. Wade. Um, segregation uh, is broken up in Christian academies in the South. And Jimmy Carter uh, backs the Supreme Court for breaking up these segregated academies. And the Christian right says, how dare you break up our segregated academies? That's big government coming in and telling us what to do about how we want to live. So all of these things. Uh, the world of Christian, the Christian right, conservative Christians, is crumbling uh, around them. And they want to win it back. And so what they, what they have done is they've decided to pursue a plan of political power, even when, for the last 40 years, there have been evangelical Christians and other Christian writers who have offered, including the, including the African-American church, who have offered alternative ways of engaging Christianly with the world, and they've been completely ignored uh, by the Christian right. So, politics over humility. And then finally, and then I'll stop here, we'll, we'll take some questions, um, history uh, over Nostalgia, or nostalgia, I should say, over history. Um, I think about Trump's other big phrase, make America great again. Now, many people, I think, when they hear that phrase, and I talk to people who listen to this phrase, they focus on the word great, right? Make America great. We want to be great. And remember, I'm a historian, right? I focus on the word again. I naturally gravitate to the word again, right? Um, it's still unclear to me when America was great, right? Donald Trump hasn't made a definitive, like what does he want to go back to? Does he want to go back to the, the Reagan era, uh, the 50s, the 19th century? I don't know, the, 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 the founding era, <laughs> I'm not sure. What I am sure about is that almost every time Donald Trump references American history in his speeches, he appeals to some of the darkest moments in our American past. If you go into the Oval Office, you'll see a huge picture there of Andrew Jackson, a white supremacist president 
uh, a populist, a man who rooted up the Cherokee Indians and sent them to, uh, to the west and, and took them off of their uh, sacred, uh, sacred lands. Um, you see, you hear about, uh, during the campaign, he used to talk about Operation Wetback, uh, this, this little known plan but by Dwight Eisenhower to round up all the illegal Mexican immigrants uh, and send them back to, uh, to Mexico. Uh, or um, America First, the 1930s Charles Lindbergh anti-Semitic isolationist slogan, right? Uh, Law and order is even like a dog whistle. That's what Richard Nixon used to try to calm down uh, the largely African-American riots in 1968 after the deaths of, uh, of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and uh, Robert F. Kennedy. So cr Christian evangelical Christians, my fellow evangelical Christians, um, tend to look at the past uh, with nostalgia. In other words, looking back to some kind of golden age that they want to return to. But inherently, th there are very different ways of exploring the past. Uh, nostalgia is one of them, and someone who's nostalgic is going to go into the past to find things that they like, that make them feel good, right? Um, ultimately, nostalgia is, a, is an inherently selfish way, I would even call it a narcissistic way, uh, of looking at the past, because people who get nostalgic are normally people who, um, who uh, uh, long for some thing that was good just for them, and they fail to see the larger picture of the past, that what was good for them in that period may not have necessarily been good for others who were living in that period at the same time. And this is where we particularly get into questions of, of race, uh, the African-American experience, and even gender, women, right? I don't know many women or African-Americans or other people of color who want to go back, right? So I think this is the kind of make America great again nostalgia uh, that, that uh, many Christians are sort of appealing to and that tr they like it because Trump wants to take them back to a kind of white Christian America. Um, now again, I, I'm not, nostalgia can sometimes be good. It has purpose in our life, right? You know, it, memories and so forth. And there could be things about the past that have been positive, right? That we want to reclaim and things. And, and I could talk about that if you want. Um, but the way that kind of nostalgia is being used by Donald Trump, I think, is, is not only dangerous to the republic, but it's also a place where Christians should not be uh, dwelling in that sense. So what is history then? I mean, you know, history forces us to view the past in all its complexity, all its messiness, right? And to encounter that. I mean, history is like a mirror on the past, right? It looks back at you and says, oh, this was, this was good, but this was not. Right? Uh, this is where we must now come to grips with what has happened in the past so that we can move forward. I love the quote by Jürgen Moltmann, the, the great, uh, the great um, theologian of hope. Historians waken the dead and piece together what is broken. Right? That's where, what we're in the business oftentimes of doing coming face to face, and evangelicals, it's time for them to come face to face and encounter some of the dark sides of their past rather than looking at that in a kind of triumphant way. So why did evangelicals vote for Trump? Why do they believe in Donald Trump? Um, because they have replaced, uh, or maybe they never had it in the first place, um, hope, humility, and history. There's a, that proves I'm an evangelical, by the way. Alliteration in three points. Hope, <laughs> history, and humility with um, 
with fear, power, and nostalgia. And now I'll take some questions. Yeah, Alex, are you going to yep. Before we begin, can we just give it up for John? Thank you. So before we begin, just some ground rules for the audience Q&A. This is a passionate topic. Um, we are going to have a lot of questions, so I just ask that we uh, restrict it to questions only at the moment. John's going to have time after the event to mingle and uh, uh, talk with you guys, but let's just yeah. stick to questions, and let's try to keep them as short as possible. So without further ado, who has the first question? Right here. Uh, skeptical scrutiny and critical self-examination do not immediately spring to mind when I think of Christian evangelicals. So how concerned are you about placing your own position in jeopardy of condemnation of heresy with your proposition? Well, yeah. I don't know if you saw the piece in uh, the uh, Penn Live uh, the other day about the book, or yesterday about the book. I thought it was... I, I, I really like Evie DeJesus, the author, but I thought her piece, is Evie here? I hope, I'll, yeah. <laughs> anyway, I really liked the piece. I thought it was way too, presented the book as way too scathing than it actually is. Um, so I kidded with my publicist, you know, I shot a, shot a quick note to my publicist and said, Do you pr does Erdman's Publishing provide protection at these book, <laughs> you know, at these book exhibits? Um, yeah, I mean, Am I worried about it? You know, I, I'm sure, you know, yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm writing my primary audience for this book, I like to think of as my tribe, my people. Um, when I was 16 years old, I had a conversion experience. Uh, I, 15 years old, you know, um, I, I put, I, I confessed to, uh, you know, I, I made a confession of faith uh, in Christianity, in an evangelical form of Christianity. So. Uh, you know, I, I, I've been to evangelical schools. Um, so again, I'm really in some ways writing, writing this uh, to my tribe, and whenever you're writing to your tribe, and especially when 81% of the voters in your tribe disagree with you, there's obviously gonna be some, some tension and some, and hopefully we can handle those rather than shouting at each other, but through conversation and so forth. I'm, I'm deeply committed that Christians must uh, worship God uh, partly with their minds. And I'm hoping that I'm making some arguments that it, I'm, not, I'm not expecting to convince everybody. Uh, there's just gonna be people that are not gonna hear what I have to say. But I do think there are enough thoughtful um, evangelicals that may have either A, voted for Trump and regretted it, or just simply are looking for another way to think about the relationship between evangelical faith and politics that this book might offer them. So am I expecting some, some pushback? I'm already, I'm already getting it. Yeah, and, uh, and um, yeah, I mean, this, the book is dedicated to the 19%, right? Although my primary audience is technically the 81%, but I, hopefully I can give the 19% uh, some kind of way to have conversations over the dinner table with their, you know, pro-Trump family members, friends, so forth. Any other questions? Yes, over there in the second row. Um, I, I think many of the, the, the conversations you talked about spot on in terms of some of the literature and things you read about, but two words, I guess, that, are, that come to mind when I hear about the evangelicals. One is, how do you rationalize yeah. and hypocrisy? Um, yeah, yeah. 
I don't hear those terms yeah. when I read about the evangelicals and the articles. I don't hear those two terms. Yeah. And then secondly, you can answer that question. The second question is, when you talk about hope and the future, what was so insightful about Obama and the fear that they had, the evangelicals yeah, had with yeah. Obama? Yeah. So the let me take the first one, um, which was how do uh, hypocrisy, right? Um, you know, I read a really good piece, I can't remember where it was, an article about um, most, most conservative evangelicals, and now I'm talking about the kind of hardcore supporters, I call them in the book the court evangelicals, the evangelicals who are the evangelical advisors to Donald Trump, they're the, probably the, most, the strongest, most outspoken evangelicals. Um, you know, I w the article suggests like you can't accuse somebody of hypocrisy if they don't understand what they're doing as hypocrisy. I mean, they've rationalized this to such an extent that hypocrisy is a criticism that comes from the outside, right? It's not going to have any effect on someone who sees a, a, a very, you know, very easily, uh, quote-unquote, logical acceptance of the way in which, uh, you know, Trump is going to be the great savior for evangelicals, particularly on these major Christian right issues like abortion and, um, you know, it used to be opposing gay marriage, but now it's been shifted to religious liberty which is many used by the Christian right to essentially mean the liberty to be able to, um, you know, to be able to have their views of, uh, of um, marriage uh, be, be accepted. And, you know, I've been criticized. I actually call that a, uh, I actually, I've been criticized by people on the left. I actually call that um, a legitimate concern, uh, the religious liberty <laughs> uh, issue. Um, you know, so, so we, can, we can talk about that, but in turn, so, so I don't think you, it, you can't justify it. You can't, uh, you know, these people, it's hard to call them hypocrites because they don't see themselves as hypocrites. The, the moral category of hypocrisy is irrelevant to them, right, because they don't see it that way. The Obama, the Obama question, I think the, the reaction to Obama is clearly, uh, you know, things moved very, very quickly for white evangelicals in the Obama era, especially as it relates to marriage. Now, if you talk to someone from the gay community or the LGBT community, uh, it didn't move quickly at all, right? I mean, this has been a long battle, right, for, for, for an Obergefell Hodges, the, the, the case that made gay marriage legal was, um, you know, the, 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 the fruit of their, their long labors, maybe since the late 60s, Stonewall riots, you know, all these kinds of things. Um, but for white evangelicals, and again, as a historian, I think part of my task is not only to be a critic of my fellow white evangelicals, but to also try to understand them and, and show at least some sense of empathy, not necessarily sympathy, but empathy. And that means kind of trying to walk in their shoes, see how they responded to this. Um, and I think the way they, they saw things moving so quickly, especially on marriage, uh, Barack Obama, when he was elected, he believed marriage was between a man and a woman. He defended the Defense of Marriage Act. He had Eric Holder defending it in court. Um, you know, he was pretty much a traditionalist on this question. He came out with Robin Roberts on ABC News and said, I've changed my mind. I now believe that it's okay for a, a, a male, a, a two, uh, 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 same sex to, to be married. Um, and then by the end of his administration, Obergefell uh, was passed and gay marriage was, that all happened in, eight, in a span of eight years. So if you believe in traditional marriage and that somehow if you, if you um, are worried about traditional marriage as a kind of model of sort of the erosion of 
Christian civilization, um, that's a problem for you. And then, you know, when, when, I'll be honest with you, when Barack Obama lit the White House up in rainbow colors, um, you know, he was, how could you not look that, as a white evangelical who believes in traditional marriage, how could you not look at that as a kind of, you know, shoving it in their face, right? Now that doesn't mean their response is right or that they're, you know, but I mean, I'm tr this is why they're reacting in the way that they, they're doing. So I think a lot of those, that eight years of Obama was just the latest manifestation of this backlash of fear that evangelicals have had on these issues. Next question. Yes, up top. I will come your way. One sec. I can talk loud. All right, yeah, that's loud enough. Good. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is a man named Carter McNeese who used to work at uh, at um, Colonial Williamsburg as an interpreter and is now a, a Baptist pastor uh, in Richmond uh, with the other Southern Baptists, right? Not <laughs> I know you would want me to make that clear. Um, it's hard. I'll say that at the beginning. Um, I've had the opportunity in my, I go to a, a large evangelical church on the West Shore. Um, I've had the opportunity to teach some classes uh, on this. Um, I don't think, I find when I wrote my book, Was America Founded as a Christian Nation in 2011, what I learned very quickly was I wanted to engage with church people, right? I, I tend to, I'm writing a lot more lately as a, to public audiences. And I found that mainline Protestant churches always have these spaces right, like adult forums or, you know, hour-long thing, you know, where they bring in guest speakers to, a, to speak from the perspective of faith on particular issues. But evangelicals don't have spaces like that uh, in, their, in their churches. Um, and, you know, I think the idea is that, right, why should we waste our time talking about American history when we could be preaching the gospel or helping people grow in their Christian faith? And I understand that, right? Um, Fortunately, I go to a church that does allow some space for that, and, and I've, so I've had some opportunities to do that. But I think that's just, you know, I, I like, I talk a little bit about the sociologist James Davison Hunter in this book. Wrote a great book, I recommend it to everyone, maybe, maybe Midtown has, has it here, right? Run and get the, whatever, how many copies they have. Um, to Change the World by James Davison Hunter. And in that book, Hunter argues that, um, you know, this issue of faithfully being present in your community where God has placed you, where God has trust, entrusted you uh, to not only uh, serve that community, right, but also to get that community to think, right? Um, I've been thinking about this in a much broader way, you know, and the, those who are peddling what I believe are faulty views of American history and nostalgia and so forth, I'll just be honest with you, they're just much better funded then, then uh, you know, they have wealthy conservative donors who funnel a lot of money in it to help them promote these kinds of, uh, these kinds of, this kind of bad history and this nostalgia and so forth. Um, you know, history is very complex. It's, it's, there's nuance to it, right? No one wants to fund complexity and nuance, right? <laughs> they want to fund their political agenda, 
right? So this is why it makes it so much more difficult. I would love to like take a year off from teaching at Messiah College and travel to churches and, and do seminars on American history, right? But who's, where am I gonna get the, how am I gonna get funding for that? Who's gonna support that, right? Um, so yeah, it's just, I just say, I just say, you know, someone like you, Carter, who has the, who has the you know, you're, you're in a place of authority in a local community, um, I would just say create opportunities for this. Yeah, just, and that's, I think, the best you can do. Sort of be faithfully present where you are on these kind of larger historical questions. Because I think ultimately the, the agenda of the Christian right uh, is deeply rooted in a false understanding of the past. If America was not founded as a Christian nation, right, then a large part of their agenda no longer, there's no reason, right? We're not, there's nothing to go back to, right? We don't have history on our side anymore, right? So, you know, take this with a grain of salt. I'm a historian, right? But I, I think uh, it all comes down to good history, right? It all comes down to making sure that uh, the history we are employing and using in the present is good history. And that's where, you know, I see myself as a historian, not someone who's peddling around um, facts that students have to memorize on a test and forget forever, but as someone who is um, really trying to do the work of uh, helping people to come to grips with who we are as a country, I'm an American historian, uh, and then how that helps us to move forward in the present. And sometimes that's a very uncomfortable, doing history can be very uncomfortable because like I said, we need to look in the mirror and see some really pretty bad things that we must come to grips with in, in, if we want to sort of reconcile uh, the world that we've inherited with uh, justice and other things in the present. Any more questions? Yes. So in your book, you address race. Yeah. And you would, so one of the things I, I believe is that if uh, we're going to actually engage in that conversation and actually tr help solve those issues or deal with those issues that white people need to pick up the mantle and run with it. Yeah. So can you talk about what you, how you address that? It's funny because some of the early reviews, depending on who, who does the review, um, there was a review in the sort of progressive website Salon that said, I don't do enough on race, right? I give too much. I, I remember when I was just trying to put yourself in the shoes of a white evangelical with Obama, right? I do too much of that. I think that's my historians, right? I, I want to give everybody a fair shake. I want to understand the world as they understand it. I don't want to superimpose my views on there. So I've been criticized in a few reviews for not doing enough with race. And then on the right, you know, all you talk about in this book is race, right? You know, so it's, um, I spend probably nine to 10 pages in chapter three, talking about this uh, pro-slavery argument, how it's deeply rooted in racism. I think every time there are issues, at least prior to like the 1970s, it seems, any time there are sort of racial backlashes uh, to um, you know, African-American civil rights, whatever it might be, it's not only evangelicals are involved in that backlash, but they're usually leading it. Right, and I think that's a that's a, a, a history that we must we must encounter. Um, I talk about race as well. I think there is a racial dimension to why so many white evangelicals don't like Obama. I, I do believe that's part of it. Um, 
you know, so I, I unpack that. I don't want to give my hand away completely here, but, but I think, I don't think it's all about race, but I think race is a huge factor uh, involved. I mean, I don't think you can talk about this also without bringing up these kind of moral issues like uh, marriage, abortion, and so forth. But even though they in some ways have connections, right, with race and poverty and, and those kinds of things. You are uh, working with young people every day. Yeah. The young evangelicals, I would assume many of them are. And I'm just wondering how you find their attitude yeah. toward yeah. the Trump agenda and sure. whether the, the agenda is being pushed primarily by the older, uh, you know, yeah. middle yeah. age and older. I think there is a generational gap at work here. I think you will find Trump supporters in the 18 to 22 year old <laughs> you know, bracket, don't get me wrong. Um, the average Trump voter, not evangelical, but just general, is, was 57 years old. Um, I think most of the evangelicals who voted for Trump, not all of them, but a significant chunk of them, and I don't have statistics to bear this out, but it, this is just my gut now and people I talk to and sort of anecdotal evidence, I think most of the people who voted for Donald Trump, this gets to the second point I made, were schooled in how to engage politically from the moral majority Christian right playbook, right? They are the, that generation. And so I think, I think I call this in the book, I made a good central PA reference in the book to pick its charge, right? Um, you know, whenever there is a last ditch effort to try to overtake uh, a stronghold or whatever it might be, you throw everything into it. And sometimes it might actually be successful for a while. But I don't see uh, most 18 to 22 year olds, um, most I should say, because I do see some, again, it's, I don't want to speak universally here, um, asking a lot of the same questions. I think a lot of 18 to 22 year olds are inherently pro-life, especially on abortion, or on abortion, but they see pro-life in a much larger way that might have something to do with uh, immigration or social justice or um, uh, helping the poor or the environment or those kinds of things. So, uh, you know, we talk a little bit about, if, you know, this, obviously I'm biased when I say this, you talk a little bit about hope, I think. Um, I'm optimistic, I'm hopeful uh, about uh, the ge next generation to come. I see it in my own kids. Uh, who are of that age, I see it in um, you know, a lot of the students that I teach, but there's still a lot of work to do too. I mean, you know, there's a lot of 18 to 22 year olds who don't see the world this way and um, we could get into a whole conversation about how I teach history because I don't usually preach in my history classes like I'm doing tonight, but that's a whole other, yeah, that's a whole other question. Yes, right here in the middle. Yeah. Um, a significant part of this campaign and what's happened afterwards has been a strong anti-intellectual strain, yeah. which goes back to the Great Awakening oh, and yeah. everything yeah. else. And w my question is, um, this is one of the hardest divides for people in the center and in the left when we can't agree on what are facts. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious, uh, you know, how do you how do you treat this in the book, yeah. and where? If you have any sense for this, yeah. where's going to be the reconciliation? Yeah. As a historian, um, you know, I just was kidding before about how I don't, you know, I do more than just tell my students to memorize facts, right? But in some ways, 
Trump and the fake news and the whole thing has forced this, in many ways I find this in my classes too, and I talk to high school teachers who are experiencing the same thing. He's forced us to go back to some of the basics, right? You know, yes, something did happen in the past. There's evidence to show that something happened. Um, how do you measure two competing accounts of one historical event? Right? How do you measure two competing accounts of a single event in the current, in the present, right? You know, these are all kind of intellectual uh, tools, if you will, that some, I think we may have taken them for granted. I'm talking now generally, kind of the historical profession, but also our culture as a whole. Um, you know, we may need, maybe we need to go back to kind of a modernism, you know, where it's like, you know, we need evidence for everything and, uh, you know, we need to, we need to make sure that anything we say could be proven with, with real evidence. And so, so uh, as a historian, I'm particularly worried about that. I do think that history can provide one of the best outlets for getting you to think in a fact-based, evidence-based way. Um, but evangelicals especially, I think, have been guilty of this uh, over the years, this kind of um, lack of deep thinking. Uh, about the world and being swayed by their, you know, by these political leaders um, and held captive in some ways by these political leaders to the fact where they are willing to, you know, just listen to talk radio. I mean, and, and I, don't listen, I don't know if there's such a thing as left talk radio. I'm sure there are most, most evangelical conservatives would say it's just all the rest, right? It's le the left talk radio. Um, but, you know, you know, just repeating lies over and over again with no evidence. And, and there's people who listen to that day in and day out, right? And that is their, where they're getting their understanding of news. They don't want to read anything that's, that's different. It's, it's like you're in a bubble, right? Um, that's a problem, yeah. And, and uh, I'm not sure what the answer, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what the answer is to solve that. I think the answer is just to keep teaching students how to think, like, think historically. Um, you know, weighing evidence, um, making evidence-based arguments, understanding bias, uh, demanding, uh, you know, demanding proof when someone makes a statement in public that's provocative, or even when someone makes a statement in public that they're going, or, a, or have a view of history or the current age in which they build public policy on a lie, <laughs> right? This is not just like Trump lying 3,000 times. This is building public policy on things that are either not true or historically are very, very problematic. I'm a reader of, of Sojourners magazine. Sure. And Jim Wallace is mm -hmm. evangelical, but uh, a, a different yeah. kind of evangelical. Yeah. And I'm so grateful that he takes on the issues with which we're living, the yeah. humane, human, social, economic issues. And I was interested to learn uh, that he was behind a new s a statement that has come out recently called Reclaiming Jesus. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really calling on the churches that are not evangelical to speak up and speak out yeah. and to reclaim what the message of Jesus' gospel yeah. is. Yeah. And it's very straightforward and it's, it's I suggest that people look it up because it's what, what I think many of us in non-evangelical yeah. churches need to be doing sure. to counteract and provide uh, a faith-based uh, reaction yeah. to what's going on in Washington, which is terrifying to many of us. 
I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of, yeah, I'll thank you for that. I'll, I'll run with that slight, in a slightly different way. Um, Jim Wallace, Sojourners, uh, the so-called evangelical left, uh, other figures, some of you may know Ron Sider and others who have argued from, uh, they represent to me one model of how to engage the world and the politics as an evangelical that has been largely like rejected and even demonized in some cases by the Christian right view. This is why I think Falwell is so such an amazing figure, you know, quote, maybe amazing is the wrong word, uh, uh, such an important figure, um, because he has managed to convince everyone that this is the right way to do it. But they're not just sort of those on the left. There's a whole school of thought within the kind of Dutch reformed world of Western Michigan, Calvin College, and, you know, who have articulated a, a view that does not, a view of, of Christian engagement with politics that does not, is not rooted in, uh, the pursuit of power. There are da James Davis and Hunter, who I quoted before, to change the world. Uh, Michael Gerson, the columnist uh, in the Washington Post and former Bush speechwriter, who draws heavily from Catholic social teaching. Um, is still an evangelical. So there are these models out there, these political models that are there, but the Christian right has, has an either rejected them, demonized them, or has been so successful in convincing people that there's only one way uh, of doing this. In the last chapter, I actually talk about, I took a, a one-week tour, some of you know about this, I took a one-week, a 10-day civil rights tour last summer. Some of the people who run that tour are in the room today. Um, there's the whole, you know, black church model that I think a lot of white evangelicals can look at, right? If anybody's afraid on a daily basis, it's, it's the African-American church, right? How do they respond to fear, right? I don't see them pursuing power, right? I mean, and, and if you look at King, uh, King uses the American past in very responsible ways, right? Go back and read like Letter from a Birmingham Jail. He's quoting Thomas Jefferson and, you know, all these other people. Um, a very responsible use of, of history to, to inform the present. So there are models out there. It's not as if like there's only one way to do this. I think Sojourners and Jim Wallace is, is, is one, of those, one of those models. And they've been around for a long, long time. So like when people say to me like, why aren't evangelicals countering this? I'm like, we've been countering it for a long time. We do, we are. But we just don't have the traction, the funding, the, you know, and we're not attached to a political party in the way that the Christian right hitched its wagon to the Reagan era 80s. Yeah. So there's a great book, one more, there's a great one point. There's a great book by a historian named David Swartz, uh, who actually came to Messiah and spoke a few years ago called Moral Minority. And it's a whole history of these alternative views of thinking about this, especially Wallace uh, and the evangelical left. Moral Minority by S David Swartz, S-W-A-R-T-Z. I highly recommend that book if you want the history of this. And he offers some suggestions as to why people like Jim Wallace have not had traction in our culture, in terms of in the evangelical culture. So we do need to wrap this up soon. So I've got one question over here, then we're gonna go to a question on the stairs, and then we do have to wrap it up. John is available to sign books, and he will be available to uh, discuss any other questions afterwards, yeah. so. Um, my question has to do with um, um, there's sort of a dichotomy. When you talk about evangelicals, I look at it two ways. Um, one, there is the pastor, the leader, and then there are those who follow. And one of the things I understand from being involved in the black church, which is just as political 
uh, and, and uh, oriented similar to the evan yeah. evangelical church, yeah. is that the framework for understanding the world and the way of God comes through the choices that the pastor makes in terms of who he puts in power, yeah. the literature he chooses for people to learn from, and the messages that he delivers every Sunday. So somewhat like Fox News, the mantra that's delivered on Sunday, the subtle messages under the uh, religious uh, messages is also carried through. The other thing about that is that in almost all evangelical churches and even in the black church, it's a conduit for political personalities to come through to reach out to the congregation for votes. So part of it, so the question I have is, is the burden, I mean, quite honestly, the churches that I've gone to, most people have not read the Bible. They come, sit, listen, listen to music, and if they learn anything, fine, if they feel good, fine. So I'm gonna broaden that and say, a lot of people have not read, but come to church because that's something culturally that we do. Yeah. Given that, what I've just said to you, how do you, even, how do you even enter into that conversation to break up that system so that people can actually think for themselves and learn as you described? Well, I, th I think one of my biggest, you know, if anything gets my blood boil, boils my blood more, is when politics enters into the church. Um, you know, and, and I think you're right. I think both the left and the right are often guilty of this. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the big arguments that the Trump supporters are trying to make is they want to overturn the Johnson Amendment. Are you familiar with this? This is this code in the, in the tax law that's, that will allow ministers to endorse candidates from the pulpit. Um, I, think, I think when you, anytime you place a nation, a political party, uh, anything above God in a service, it's a form, it's a form of idolatry. So those who, are, those who are engaged in this, in this exercise uh, are in that category, I would say. How do you deal with it? I mean, you're, you're pushing my limits here. I'm a, I'm a historian, and I'm trying to be more prophetic in this book. That's my problem. I'm not used to giving prescriptions. I'm used to diagnosing problems in the past. Um, I, I'll just... I'll just throw out a word of encouragement. Um, there are churches who are doing this. Um, my evangelical pastor, I had, didn't see him here, um, just recently preached a sermon in which he said, uh, you know, if you're bringing your politics here, I don't care what it is, you know, he didn't say we don't want you here, but he said, you know, this is not gonna be a church that's going to engage in, in any kind of politics. We're gonna preach the gospel, we're gonna present the word of God, and let the chips fall where they may, right, you know, on these questions. So I think we just need more of that. But I'll just let your diagnosis stand. Uh, there are, this is a serious problem, especially among Trump evangelicals. And I'll just say here, uh, you know, true to my vocation as a historian, it's a historical problem. It's not something that just popped up with Trump. It's not even something that just popped up uh, with Jerry Falwell in the 1970s. There has been a long history since the founding of the Republic of this idea that uh, uh, Christian, Christians and politics, or the Christians and the fate of the United States of America have gone hand in hand. I wrote a whole book about this in 2011. Um, 
so, so this, is a, this is not something you just change overnight within the conservative evangelical world. This what I call Christian nationalism, right? The idea that we bring our politics or we bring our love of country into a place where we should only be focusing on the kingdom of God uh, has a long history, it's a long problem, and that means it's, it's deeply ingrained within the culture and it's gonna take hard work to, to, to change it. Um, so, I, for a very large part, agree with your three points you make, the three main points. Although I think there could be another fourth point that you're maybe missing. What do you think of, and the reason I'm asking this is if this would happen again in another election, I would like to know more on like how we should be voting. What do you say to the group of people who are evangelicals that didn't see Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton as either moral high ground candidates and didn't really want to vote for either, but as an American citizen, yeah. knew it's good to vote. Like, it's a right we all should pertain in. Yeah, I don't have a prescription for that. I, I, each person is gonna handle that in their, own, in their own kind of way. I'm not here to tell people how they should vote, who they should vote for or not. Um, you know, I think the answer is you have to vote your conscience, right? And if that means, if you can live with the fact, like I hear this all the time, right? If you didn't vote for Trump, or if you voted for Hillary, no, how does it go? If you, if you didn't vote for either, you were really from conservative evangelicals. If you didn't vote for either, you voted for Hillary, <laughs> right? Or you could go the other way, right? You know, um, and you know, I know a lot of very, con I have a lot of conservative friends who could not vote for Trump. They took that argument that I, you know, they, they thought about that argument and said, based on conscience, I can't live with myself for voting for this person. Um, and then they let the chips fall where they may. Um, but I, I, I'm open to any kind of, an, you know, different people will vote or not vote depending on their own uh, conscience. And I think your conscience is kind of formed if you're a Christian through church, through uh, devotional practices, through spiritual disciplines and so forth. Um, through being, uh, being attentive to the world. And so, you know, I, I don't think there's one way Christians should vote. I mean, I think, I think there's times when, you know, a Christian might vote differently in a local election than a national election or a state election. I think there are, every, every four years, there could be a different set of issues that might lead you to vote one way or another. Uh, I just worry about the kind of conservative evangelicals who make one or two issues a litmus test and if you're not if you're not voting that way, you're somehow not truly being a, a Christian. I think it's much broader than that. I think there's there's many more issues at stake that intersect with whether it be the teachings of Jesus, teachings of Christianity, or whatever. So I wish I could I wish I could give you a definitive answer to that, but I can't. Can we give it up for John? Big thank you to John. Thank you to everyone for coming out. John is going to stick around, sign some books over at the table here. Uh, he's available to, s to talk with you all. Um, I'm going to do my best to clear as many tables and chairs out, and then I'm going to bring out some snacks and some, some lemonade so we can mingle. But uh, thanks again for coming, everyone. Have a good night. <laughs>